Hi, everybody. It's great to be able to share God's Word with you again today. I'm very grateful for the technology that allows us to be together in this way. It's also really wonderful to be able to welcome people from all over the world. I believe we have people listening in London and Sheffield and even in Spain. Uh, this probably means that you have a mother who is in our congregation and who has sent you a sermon this morning. But whoever you are and wherever you are, please know that we are thinking of you and praying for you and your family. And we really hope that you'll feel a part of our church family this morning. Our reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 to 12. This was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison to a little church in Philippi in Greece. It's a well-known passage, not necessarily anything new, but just some important reminders for us, which I believe will give us both comfort and challenge today. Let's have a look. Paul is reaching the end of his letter and he writes this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is like to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. I remember hearing about a pastor who preached what he thought was a really great sermon. And afterwards, for some reason, he went up to a lady in his congregation and he asked her, how did you enjoy the sermon? And she said to him, oh, pastor, your sermon reminded me of the love and peace of God. And the pastor felt quite good about that until he went home and remembered what the Bible says. The love of God lasts forever and the peace of God transcends all understanding. And this morning I'd like us to look at the topic of God's peace, which is definitely something that we need at a time like this. 
I'm not sure if you noticed it, but actually Paul spoke about two different types of peace in this passage. In verse 7, he speaks about the peace of God, and in verse 9, he speaks about the God of peace. Those things are related, but they're actually different, and it's worth looking at them separately. Let's begin in verse 9, where Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. This is peace in a judicial sense. The God of peace is the God who makes peace between himself and sinners. You may remember that Jesus' very first word to his disciples after his death and resurrection was the word peace. He comes to his disciples who are gathered in the upper room with the doors locked and he says to them, Peace be with you. Now, that was the common Hebrew greeting in those days. Shalom, peace. But this is more than just a polite greeting. John tells us that Jesus says it a second time. Peace be with you. After he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and side. Those were the wounds by which peace was made between man and God. And this, then, is a dimension of peace that only the Christian faith can give us. True peace is having a fundamentally right relationship with God through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about this in a number of places in the New Testament, He says to the Ephesians, for example, Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He writes to the Colossians and says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. He writes to the Romans and says, Therefore, since we have been justified, put into a right relationship with God, Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we cannot know true peace until we know the God of peace. True peace is being in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I have peace with God. I move from being God's enemy to being God's beloved son or daughter. And can I ask you this morning, is that you? Do you know God, not as a topic to be discussed, but as a person to be enjoyed? So if we are in a right relationship with God, if we have this judicial peace with God, then we are able to have the second type of peace, which Paul mentions, the experiential peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is this peace of God? 
Well, it's an inner calm and equilibrium. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, I have learned how to be content in whatever circumstance. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. No matter what is going on around me on the outside, inwardly I have peace, which is quite a statement given the fact that Paul is sat in jail. This is the peace that Jesus promised his disciples the night before he died. The context for what he says is so important. In a few hours' time he will be tortured to death, but he still says this to his disciples and to us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. The story is told of a king who commissioned all of his best artists to paint the perfect picture of peace. And hundreds of different paintings came in from all over the kingdom. And the king had to decide and judge between many different types. Eventually, though, he was down to his last two. The courtiers brought in the first painting, and it was magnificent. There was a perfectly smooth lake, which had a mirror image of some beautiful soft hills, green birch trees, and a quiet evening sky. On one of the hills, a flock of sheep gazed quietly and undisturbed. Surely this was the perfect picture of peace. And then the courtiers brought in the second painting, and at first everyone thought it couldn't possibly be a picture of peace. There was a huge waterfall cascading down a precipice, and the viewers could almost feel the cold, penetrating spray. There were stormy grey clouds above the waterfall that threatened at any moment to explode with lightning, wind and hail. But then as the spectators looked more closely at the picture, they spotted a small branch that had been caught in the rocks at the bottom of the waterfall. And there a little bird had built a nest and was content to sit on the eggs in her nest. And the king and the spectators agreed that that was true peace, a peace that transcends all earthly turmoil. The next thing that Paul tells us is that this peace is not merely an absence, it is a presence. Peace is not just an absence of fear, it is a sense of being protected. Paul says that the peace of God will guard our hearts. And the word that he uses is a military term. Literally, he says that the peace of God will garrison our hearts. The word means to completely surround and fortify a building or a city to protect it from invasion. Our hearts will be surrounded by the soldiers of God's peace. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller writes this. Today, when you read books or websites on overcoming anxiety and handling fear, they usually talk about removing thoughts. They say, don't think about that. Don't think those negative thoughts. Control your thoughts. Expel the negative ones. Christian peace does not start with the ousting of negative thinking. If you do that, you may simply be refusing to face how bad things are. 
Here we see the peace of God is not the absence of negative thoughts. It is the presence of God himself. So Christian peace is an inner calm and equilibrium, but also a sense of God's presence and his protection. Notice, though, in this passage that Paul says he has learned to be content. It didn't come naturally to him. There were certain disciplines that he put into practice in his life, and he says to the Philippians, whatever you've seen or learned from me, put that into practice in your life. In other words, there are certain habits that we can practice specifically in this time that will enable us to experience more of God's peace. Paul mentions six things in these verses first, and then he says, and the peace of God will guard your hearts, and the God of peace will be with you. So let's look at the spiritual disciplines that Paul mentions at the beginning of this passage. Firstly, Paul says, if we want to experience more of God's peace, we should rejoice. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England in the 1940s, well known for preaching very slowly through books of the Bible, verse by verse. When he came to preach on Philippians chapter 4, he preached a sermon on the first part of verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, and he spent a whole week on that phrase. The next week, the congregation came back and Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at the second phrase, I say it again, rejoice. And he preached the same sermon as he'd done the week before. He said, if God said it twice, I need to preach it twice. I think it's so important to see that Paul doesn't say we are to rejoice in our circumstances. How can we rejoice about people getting sick and dying, losing their jobs, losing their income? It's not possible. But that's not what Paul says. He says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, we're to think about God and his character and his goodness. In chapter 3 of this letter, Paul speaks about glorying in Christ Jesus, valuing Jesus, thinking about him, delighting in him, in who he is and what he has done for us. And so let me encourage you in this week to spend some time each day just thinking about the character of our Heavenly Father. He is our Creator, our Redeemer, all-loving, all-powerful. Think about His sheer goodness towards us. Read what the Bible has to say about Him. Spend some time listening to Christian hymns and songs, especially ones that remind you of the greatness of God. If we want to experience God's peace, we need to rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, if we want to experience more of God's peace, we need to display gentleness. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The word that Paul uses for gentleness is variously translated. It can mean unselfishness, considerateness, forbearing, moderation, reasonableness, but it refers to our interaction with others, and basically it means yieldedness. What is a yield sign 
it means to give way to others. I heard about a captain of a ship who was sailing one night in stormy weather, and he saw some faint lights in the distance, and so he sent out a message, Alter your course ten degrees south. And immediately a message came back, Alter your course ten degrees north. Well, the captain was a little bit upset, and so he sent a message back, Alter your course ten degrees south. I am a captain. And immediately the message came back, Alter your course ten degrees north. I am a seaman, third class. And now the captain was really angry, and he sent a message stating, Alter your course ten degrees south. I am a battleship. And the reply came back, Alter your course ten degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Earlier on in this letter, Paul said to us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus by rejoicing in the Lord, and we are to take our eyes off ourselves by practicing gentleness, putting aside our ideas and wants and needs and agenda and giving way to someone else. You could practice gentleness for yourself this week when you are in the long queue at the shops, hum a hymn to yourself or chat to the people around you. When you enter the shop, greet the person who is spraying the hand sanitizer. Thank him for being there. Ask him how he's doing. When you're in the queue for the checkout, let someone who has just a few groceries go ahead of you. Greet the cashier. Thank her for risking her own health and safety to be there for you. On the way out of the shops, greet the security guard. In fact, on your way to the shops, don't think of it in terms of mission impossible. How can I get in and out with what I need as quickly as possible? See it as a different mission. Think to yourself, how many people can I encourage and help in the next hour? And pray, Lord, help me to be a blessing to someone during the shopping trip. If we want to experience more of God's peace, we need to practice gentleness. Thirdly, Paul says that if we want to experience more of God's peace, we need to get rid of worry. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. This verse almost seems obscene to those who have a great deal to worry about at the moment, those whose jobs and income and pension and savings and health are under very real threat. How can Paul say we're not to be anxious about anything? Well, I think there are two things. Firstly, there's the aspect of relationship. You know, Paul begins this letter to the Philippians by saying, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. A slave in those days didn't have to worry about his food or his clothes or his housing because that was something that was his master's responsibility. And we have one who is far more gracious than any earthly slave master. We have a father. That was Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 5 when he spoke about worry. He said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? 
or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We have a Father who knows what we need, and we can trust him. But then there's something practical that we can do about worry too, and that's found in the next discipline. Fourthly, Paul tells us that if we want to experience more of God's peace, then we should pray, which is actually the antidote for worry. Verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul says that in contrast to worry, we are to pray. Worrying is continually talking to myself about my problems. Praying is continuously talking to God about my problems. And often we confuse worry with prayer. If I have a problem and someone asks me, have you prayed about it? I'll immediately say, of course I have. But the reality is often that while the situation has been on my mind and I've been thinking about it and worrying about it, I haven't really been praying about it. Praying about something means taking it to God intentionally, fervently and frequently. And so in this week that lies ahead, let's consciously try to use worry as a prompt to pray and set aside time each day just to pray for a different aspect of this pandemic. Take a day to pray for our healthcare workers. Take another day to pray for our government ministers and all of those in authority. Take another day to pray for our ministers and our missionaries trying to serve God in difficult circumstances. If we want to experience more of God's peace at this time, we can do so through prayer. Fifthly, Paul says that if we want to experience more of God's peace in our lives, we should practice thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is to be a part of our prayers even in the midst of petition. In other words, while we're asking for things, look at verse 6 again. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I remember hearing one preacher say that we come to God with our problems in our hands and we say, look at all my problems, Lord. And God looks at them and he says, you're right. You've got a lot of problems there, haven't you? But you've also got something else there too. And we look again and we say, well, yes, I've got some blessings too. You've been so good to me. You've given me so much. I have all that I need. We do have difficulties and problems and concerns this morning, but we have other things too. Something to eat, something to drink, something to wear, some place to stay. Thanking God can put things into perspective for us. And so this week, start a thankfulness list. Write down the things that you're grateful for. Have you thanked God for the gift of sight, the gift of hearing, the gift of literacy? And don't just write down your thanks, express your thanks to God, to others. If you're grateful for a family member, then phone that family member and tell them. 
If you're grateful for a teacher, send them an email or a WhatsApp message. Maybe there are total strangers, the manager at Pick and Pay, the president, the premier of the Western Cape, that you could send an email to. Expressing our thanks regularly solidifies thankfulness within us and also increases thankfulness within us. So this week, write at least one thank you note to somebody. And number six, Paul says that if we want to experience more of God's peace in our lives, we should think about what we think about. Verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, and Paul was a typical preacher because he says, finally, he'll still go on for 16 verses. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Folk, in this time, I really encourage you to be careful about what you think about. There are so many WhatsApp messages and videos going around. There are so many Facebook posts and news stories. Do try to limit the amount of time you spend on your phone or watching television. But actually, Paul isn't just saying here that we should only watch good, clean movies on Netflix during this time. He's not just talking about things that are morally good and right. He's urging us to think about the specific teaching of the Bible, about God, sin, Christ, salvation, the world, human nature, God's plan for the world, the plan of salvation. Let me read a section of Tim Keller's book to you again. It's a bit long, but I think it's important for us. He says, Contemporary books on anxiety and worry go right to relaxation techniques and to the work-rest balance. For example, they'll say that every so often you should go and sit on a beach, look at the surf, and just bracket out worrying and thinking about things. Or they will give you thought control techniques about dealing with negative thoughts and emotions, guilt thoughts and so forth. Why don't contemporary books on stress and anxiety tell you to respond to it by doing deep thinking about it? It's because our Western secular culture is perhaps the first society that operates without any answers to the big questions. If there is no God, we are here essentially by accident, and when we die we are only remembered for a while. Eventually, in this view, the sun will die and all that has ever been done by human beings will come to nothing. If that's the nature of things, then it's no wonder that secular books for people under stress never ask them to think about questions such as, what are we here for? Instead, they advise you not to think so hard about everything, but to relax and to find experiences that give you pleasure. Paul is saying here that Christian peace operates in almost exactly the opposite way. Christian peace comes not from thinking less, but from thinking more and more intensely about the big issues of life. Paul is saying, if you want peace, think hard and long about the core doctrines of the Bible. Think big and high. Realize who God is, what he has done who you are in Christ, where history is going. Put your troubles in perspective by remembering Christ's troubles on your behalf and all his promises to you and what he is accomplishing. 
The early American theologian Jonathan Edwards was a congregational preacher. The earliest sermon manuscript we have from him, composed at age 18, is entitled Christian Happiness. Despite the youth of the author, its basic outline is striking. His simple point was that a Christian should be happy whatever his outward circumstances are. And then he made his case in three propositions, which I shall paraphrase. For Christians, their bad things will work out for good, Romans 8.28. Their good things, adoption into God's family, justification in his sight, union with him, cannot be taken away. Their best things, life in heaven, new heavens and the new earth, resurrection, are yet to come. And Paul says, think about such things. So six imperatives and two promises in these verses. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything he had in the Chicago fire of 1871. Just two years later, he sent his wife Anna and their four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The ship hit another ship and began to sink. As it was sinking, Anna got the four little girls together and prayed. The ship went under the water and they were all scattered into the waves and all four little girls drowned. Anna was found floating unconscious in the water by a rescue ship. They took her to England and she sent a telegram to Horatio Spafford that contained just two words, saved alone. A few weeks later, Spafford himself took a ship to England to bring his wife home, and as his ship passed near the spot where his daughters died, he felt the Holy Spirit inspiring the words of this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the experiential peace we've been speaking about, an inner sense of tranquility. And that comes about through judicial peace, a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which in fact is what Spafford described in the last verse of his hymn. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. You and I receive that as a free gift, but thereafter we can increase our sense of peace by a few Christian disciplines. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen.